0: Land right is foundational. It's a river upon which all other rights flow. So, for us, protecting public spaces is important to ensure that we are able to make it possible for the other rights, let the right to basic education be possible for the Kenyan kids.
1: Welcome to Kickback, the global anti corruption podcast. What you just heard is the voice of Eric Kinaga. He's a Kenyan-born writer, social justice enthusiast, who works for Transparency International Kenya. In this podcast, we talked to Eric about his work as the campaign coordinator for the Shule Yangu Campaign Alliance. It is an initiative in Kenya to protect public schools via open data initiatives. This podcast was made possible by the Land Portal Foundation. After our previous episode with Franz von Weizsäcker from the German International Development Organization, GIZ, Landportal reached out to us asking if we would be interested in doing a podcast together on the importance of open data for the fight against land corruption. So what you're about to hear is the voice of Neil Sorensen, who is the communication specialist of Landportal and who joined the conversation as a co-host. For more info on Shulyango, the different documentaries that Eric refers to, and to learn more about the work that Land Portal does, you can check out our show notes. We hope you enjoy the episode.
2: Hi, my name is Neil Sorensen, and uh, I'm a communication specialist with the Land Portal Foundation a nonprofit organization, a charity based in the Netherlands. Uh, we're a totally digital organization with a small team that's uh, generally based uh, all over Europe and uh, we have a colleague in, in the Quebec. You know our, what we do at the Land Portal Foundation is that we believe that access to information is really crucial for achieving good land governance and to securing land rights for both landless and vulnerable people and that uh, access to land and, and related information is, is really necessary. And so the Land Portal provides a platform to present land data, news information, and other content and to connect you know, really large hundreds and even thousands of organizations and people uh, working on land issues together and to build an information ecosystem on land while stimulating debate, uh, and uh, holding dialogues, webinars, visualizing data and information in thematic and country portfolios. We have a country portfolio, a thematic portfolio focused on land corruption, and also quite a a lot of data focused on land corruption. And so, and we support uh, people and organizations in the land sector to To build their own information ecosystem and and to support open data principles so that's what we do and thanks for being part of this today
1: great thank you very much neil we are also very happy and honored to have eric inaga on the the podcast eric would you mind introducing yourself really briefly
0: all right, thanks, uh, thanks, uh, Neil. Uh, glad to be here this afternoon. My name is Eric Kinaga. I am the campaign coordinator for Shuleango Alliance campaign, and this is a national network of partners who came together in 2015 to coordinate and consolidate efforts towards uh, protecting public school spaces. Um, this began with a demonstration aimed at uh, reclaiming one of the playgrounds uh, uh, for you know for a public school within the the, the central business district. And, and later it morphed into a national campaign that uh, today brings together various actors in the public, private, and the civil society sectors. And the aim for us is to complement and, and, and ensure that uh, the right to education is is entrenched, really, because, as you think, uh, you know, we would all agree that land right is land right is, is a foundation, or it's a river upon which all other rights flow. Uh, and so for us, protecting public spaces is, is, is important to ensure that we are able to make it possible for the other rights, let the the right to basic education be possible for the Kenyan kids. Thank you.
1: This is really interesting, Eric. I mean, um, I have so many questions, but maybe let's let's take a step back and first um, ask you, how did you get interested in this topic in the first place?
0: So I got interested, uh, I'd interacted with the campaign uh, since 2015. So the campaign has been quite popular in the country over the last five years for various reasons. Of course, one of the main reasons is that the campaign captured uh, the national attention in 2015, and what we saw on the news, uh, on mainstream media, was photos of photos and videos of kids, uh, school kids, being tear-gassed by the police. And, and of course, uh, upon further interrogation, what what came out clearly is that this, these are children, uh, together with the various school communities at Langata Road Primary School, who had come together to defend their playground from being grabbed. Uh, by a nearby hotel uh, which which is you know the ownership of that hotel is allegedly uh, related to a very well-connected public servant in the country so it was a big issue the media stations across the country and even uh, around the world captured uh, captured the issue of Langata Road and what seemed like a very daunting task um, eventually uh, led to the successful reclamation of that playground and for the first time you know uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of excitement you know across the, the citizenry that it was actually possible to for, for ordinary citizens to literally just reclaim public spaces through uh, various uh, tactics and, and one of them being coordination between the various actors and and, and you know just being able to mobilize and, and, and organize themselves as, as, as citizens so, the reclamation of this public land led to the partners. The, the partners at that time uh, being very excited about the idea, and so, in order to be able to uh, sustain this momentum of, of excitement, uh, there was a need to have a structure because really what happened was just a demonstration, a public action that brought diverse actors uh, from across the space. So there was need to just have a coordinated way of, of approach. Uh, and, and of course, this was informed by the fact that uh, land grabbing has had always been an issue in this country. It continues to be an issue even today and we, uh, we of course can predict that in the years to come we'll continue to see land grabbing uh, being a pertinent issue, uh, a g- governance issue moving forward. So uh, this is what led to the formation of Shuleyango campaign, and the idea was that uh, we begin with the schools, and later we can enlarge our scope to, you know, to towards uh, protecting and reclaiming other public spaces that have been lost. Uh, you know, school lands belonging to schools belong, belonging to public health centers to. To uh, police stations, even police stations have lost their land, uh, and so that's that, that's generally what led to Shuleangu to being formed. But I think what really excited me into being part of it is because uh, being a development practitioner, I think for the over the last six seven years that I've been in the space, one of the things that really speaks to my heart is the, the mechanism the or rather the ability of civil society actors to be able to work with government. Agencies, in this case, the duty bearers, because the role that we play as civil society is is a transitional role. We, we are basically trustees, and, and the idea is how do we bridge the gap between the right holders and the duty bearers. So, whenever I'm able to see this coordination between non state actors and state actors towards uh, addressing a public issue, I think really excites me. So, Shulangu eventually collaborated with government, and um, and in 2018, a task force was set up. And the main uh, the main focus of this task force was to reclaim public schools. Was to it was mandated by the president. A task force was set up by the government within, within government spaces, uh, and the mandate was to accelerate titling and ensure that all public schools in the country were titled. Until independence, about over 50, slightly over fifty years ago, uh, Kenya's independence, we only had about four thousand schools titled, just shy one school shy of five thousand schools titled, uh, out of a total of about thirty-two thousand schools across the country. So, as a result of the coordination of efforts over the years, uh, we've seen some really good improvement. And I think uh, the ability for the ability of the civil society actors, you know, uh, being able to work very closely with government agencies to ensure that uh, that what needs to be done for the common. Uh, citizen is able to be achieved uh, as, as as soon as possible. I think that's what excites me, and that's what that is the honor that I that, that I drew from being part of uh, this campaign.
1: It's very inspirational, Eric. I think two things you said I want to pick up on. The the first thing you said is uh, something that I have heard many times, namely that often some form of a, well, let's say a media image instigates some form of outrage and first, you know, like initiatives of public action, collective action. You mentioned a video that was circulating. Sometimes it's, you know, an image, a picture, it could even be, or a story, something that is somehow uh, used Mm. um, in the media to, sometimes even social media, right? Like to really get people going, let's say, but you mentioned something that I think is very, very important, uh, namely that it then needs structure, right? Like, I think it's a very crucial point that it, just from this uproar itself very little Mm. change usually or lasting change comes about so i wanted to ask you if you could maybe tell our listeners a little bit about how you built up that structure such that you could sustain the efforts of the Shula alliance because i think that would be very very useful for anti-corruption initiatives to know around the world because i think that is often a very big challenge you have people coming together who are all fed up about a certain problem often related to corruption but they often don't have the the toolkit to build up that structure that you are referring to. So, if you could briefly comment on that, that would be very interesting.
0: Okay, great. Uh, as you rightly observed, uh, there are many movements across the world that that are unable to live up to the aspirations, and you have a lot of excitement that comes in of sort of uh, you know an uprising and or a, or a very popular movement that doesn't see the light of day in terms of how long it's supposed to happen. By and, and I think this is what Really uh, drew the, the founders of, of the Shuliangu Alliance campaign. I mentioned that the campaign began in twenty fifteen. I interacted with the campaign uh, at that point, but uh, I, I assumed uh, the, I assumed leadership of the campaign in twenty nineteen. But but one of the one of the ideas that came together was was just a mapping of the political actors. So you know, just being able to know from the civil society space who are the critical players in this sector, who are the people that we need to speak to. Uh, to be able to get our message going? Who are the enablers within government that we can map? So there, there's a lot of mapping of the stakeholders, especially the duty within those who would say are duty bearers. Then there was a lot of also mapping of partners outside of government. So every single integral party that, that was important to the, towards the protection and, and tightening of public school was mapped. So of course, we had a, we have about uh, thirty-two thousand public schools that I, that I mentioned. So, beyond mobilizing with the government agency, of course, in this case was the Ministry of Education, because all the all the school heads uh, differ to the Ministry of Education. But there were also other umbrella bodies. There are umbrella bodies in the country that bring together school heads specifically. So we have an umbrella body for school heads uh, of primary schools. We have an umbrella body for school heads of uh, secondary schools, public secondary secondary schools in this case. And and so all these this came together. So we had the primary school heads association, the secondary school Heads association. We had, uh, of course, civil society organizations like Transparency International Kenya. We had uh, Amnesty International then we also have organizations an, an organization that works specifically with alumni associations. so you know we all went to schools so what is if, if today you were called and informed that the school your alma mater is is in a problem or land is you know is about to be reclaimed then it's easy to have alumni association or or even, or even just individuals mobilize around their love for a particular school so we have we have an organization within the alliance that purely works around alumni you know strengthening alumni re- relations and so the idea was to ensure that we get partners who have networks grassroots networks to mobilize in whichever way if we need to mobilize within government then we have partners who are who have very close working relationships with government agencies because a lot of the work that they do relates around institutional strengthening know, in organizations like Transparency international has worked quite strongly with the, gov- with, with the various arms of government, various levels of government to try and build the systems so that uh, they're able to respond to the needs that they they were intended for. We also have organizations that are big on, on public action, big on, on civ- civic mobilization, grassroots uh, uh, engagement. So these are still their school. So that if we need to have a case where land has not been grabbed by an ordinary citizen, but has actually been grabbed by government itself because we've seen cases where it's a government agency encroaching on on a, on a public land. Which this, this is a government to government issue. How do we relate to that? Uh, if it's an issue that requires uh, grassroots uh, mobilization of the communities that that live within such schools or spaces, then they are able to come in and and you know and put in their voice against the, the encroachment of us of that school. So. I'd say in a nutshell is, is, is of course, the mapping of all the critical players and ensuring that uh, we develop a partnership partnership framework of, uh, you know, we're going to have an alliance, but this alliance... We are bringing different people who have different interests and different areas of work to do. How do we how do we bring some form of homogeneity beyond the objective? How do we sustain the you know the furtherance of this objective that brings them together diverse partners? So, one of the things that came up was the setting up of a secretariat. So we have the Shuleango Alliance Campaign Secretariat, and this secretariat is hosted by one of the alliance partners and currently the alliance of course, of course since 2018 the alliance campaign the secretariat has been hosted by uh, transparency international kenya it could be hosted by any of the other partners in the years to come and of course the long-term vision for shilangwa campaign is that the work we do will wholly be domiciled within you know a relevant uh, government agency so that we are able to be we are able to have an assured uh, sort of sustainability of, of of the work that we do moving forward even uh, beyond the campaign uh, uh, in you know campaign resources that we we have today and may not have tomorrow
1: well this is uh, very insightful thank you for this very detailed answer to that as I mentioned before, I had like two things I wanted to pick up on. The The first one was what you just talked about, the how you, how you come up with a structure. The other thing you mentioned, I think was really interesting is the the importance to build a bridge between the civil society and government bodies and to sort of come up with a way to collaborate. And I think what yeah. you mentioned there now, is seems to be like two main ingredients, right? Like the mapping of the political actors to get an understanding who is sort of responsible. True. But then probably also a very important step is this networking that you just mentioned, right. To find organizations exactly. who have the same interest at hand, who might be so, sort of fighting the same fight. Could you maybe comment on the difficulties, the challenges that you had to co- overcome in this process? Because the way it sounds now, is almost like it is. Offline. It, yeah, exactly. So could you maybe <laughs> tell us a little bit about how the, the challenges you faced and how you overcame them?
0: Perhaps I could, I could start with the successes because of course, one of the critical successes that the campaign has has reaped over the years is that we've had very very dedicated public servants across the spectrum. So we have had people in very high spaces, uh, very high places of, of of governance who've been very excited about the work that Shulengu does. So you know, it has helped reduce the bureaucracy of having to mobilise government uh, government officers or government offices to take particular action. And especially when you're trying to respond to a rapid uh, response. If it's something that a school is being grabbed here and now, how do we respond very fast and and, and provide the support that is required? So that's that, that's been one of the critical ingredients of that, that has led to the success that we've, we've achieved in the past. But again, the success... Is multifaceted. It's, you know, it's it's a dichotomy. The other side of that of it has been one of the biggest challenges. Sometimes you have um, very enthusiastic uh, ministers, cabinet ministers who were very enthusiastic, but have since been transferred to other ministries. So then you you know the change of guard within government. Uh, you you know by the time you pick it up again, it becomes a problem. By the time you're able to you know uh, get the new office holder to a place of understanding and a place of uh, appreciation of the work that you do. It takes a a long time and and sometimes there's a bit of delay on that regard. I think one of the other delays has been uh, inadequate government resourcing. Uh, So when we came together as a task force, one of the things that happened, beyond just mapping out what needs to be done, we also committed funds that we will contribute towards undertaking some of these plans. Uh, so we, you know, Shuleango committed an X amount of money towards uh, surveying, towards titling, towards mobilization of citizens and that kind of thing. And then other, of course, other organizations also also did the same. I was mentioning uh, one of the biggest challenges we've had uh, with the campaign so far is the change of guard within government. So you have people who are once very enthusiastic you know, been know, transferred to other ministries and and it affects the, the pace of the work. You know, some of the targets that you we had by certain timelines are not able to be achieved because now the enablers within government have since moved on. Uh, the issue of budgetary support within government offices has also been a problem because one of the agreements that was made is that uh, the various you know the various actors that came together to form Shule Angola Alliance, which include, as I mentioned, the government and and the non-state actors were also contributing, you know, were making contributions that would uh, address certain issues. If you're talking about a tightly holding a in event, Shuliango would contribute, government agencies, various government agencies would also be contributing. So at some point in I think for almost two years, we had one of the very critical government agencies, which is the National Land Commission, did not have any funding to contribute towards uh, the school, the school protection efforts. And so this to a great extent affected the pace of, of work as a, as a total whole, as a, as a, as a whole. And, and, and I think to, uh, uh, the other bit, of course, was um, the absence of uh, leadership. At some point, one of the government agencies that we work with did not have commissioners, you know, and commissioners are like the, the very top management uh, or, or leadership that you would engage at the highest level to be able to draw a sense of ownership uh, within that office. So the absence of top leadership in some government or agencies affected the piece of our work. And of course, again, uh, some of these issues, there are things that we could not mitigate entirely as Shuliangwa Alliance because, you know, you can imagine tightly of 32,000 public schools across the country. There's only so much that uh, funds, uh, you know, development partners support like ours. Uh, there's only so much that we can do. And so sometimes we had to let go some of uh, the plans that we had or some of the, some of the timelines that we had set, set out initially uh, as a result of some of the challenges that I've mentioned.
2: Hey Eric, thanks. Very interesting work that you're doing. It's very shocking to hear that government officials and maybe others are somehow involved in stealing school lands. And so, could you perhaps give us a bit of a detailed example of this kind of land corruption and, and how it transpired, and what your organization did to overcome it?
0: Well, uh, thanks, thanks, Neil. Uh, that. Quite honestly, the examples are many. I, I mean, we've had a number of examples of schools whose land has been grabbed as a result, uh, as a result of complacency or, you know, complicitness of, of some of these government agencies, uh, or, or individuals within government, uh, the government. And, and I think one of the cases that, I, you know, perhaps highlight in this podcast, uh, is a school in Nakuru in the Rift Valley province of, of this country, uh, the school is Naka Primary School, and, and and Naka is a perfect example of just how crude government can be sometimes. Because we we have land, of course, uh, land was set apart uh, by by the municipal council uh, the defunct, you know, the the, the the municipal council of a particular county for purposes of setting uh, up a school, and the land that was set apart for the purposes of that school was about uh, eleven acres of land. So the, where the land was set apart is in a very Kosh neighborhood or suburb the perfect image for what a grabber would look for you know very nice uh, environment of uh, where the school is located and and over the years that suburb began to really grow at a very accelerated rate and and today as we speak that place is one of the uh, is one of the areas where land is the most expensive and and indeed this is just the reality of many of our public schools many of our public schools, had their land set apart in the early 50s, in the early 40s, in the early 60s, 70s, in places which have so today grown into major cities, into major towns. There's a lot of business. And and as you can imagine, there's much more appetite for grabbing of such public land as a result of the value that it holds. So we have estates that grew around that school and eventually... The mayor, one of the mayors at that the school was was part of the team that led to uh, a double registration of a title deed. A company was registered in one day, and in the second day, uh, in the same day, a, a title is issued. You know, the a purchase and title is issued of the same land that is set apart for for school land. And today we've had a long standing case uh, case in court between Naka like Primary School and um, and a private uh, developer who eventually, because the land the, the, land, the transfer of that land was was done over the years to various partners. So eventually the, the case between the, the school and the current alleged uh, owner is has been has been court for some time really. and and when you look at when you go through the case and, and what is what it, it's been like over the years, you clearly can tell that there was a lot of complacency. in fact, this is one of the cases that Shuleangu decided as, as part of sensitizing Kenyans on, on what land grabbing is about. We decided to do uh, documentaries. So we've done about four documentaries that showcase various schools that have been grabbed across the country and, and just what the details were that led to the land being grabbed and you know, and, and to the status as is uh, today. And in this documentary, we laid bare just some of the facts and, and even the rulings. And sometimes we've seen cases where even judges are, are compromised. So a ruling is made on a technicality and not advocating the substance, the substance of, of the matter and and, and and it's ruled on a technicality, the school loses a land. Fortunately, the community at Naka has been very, very uh, instrumental in ensuring that the case remains alive. Shuuliu has been supporting that, including legal support, providing an advocate to follow up on that case. And finally, the case has now. We recently one of the developments that we've had is 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 a reaching out of alternative dispute resolution mechanism. Uh, you know, an out of court settlement. How do we settle this? And and that's something that we are beginning to really observe because from where I sit, it's one of the strategies that we've been trying to adopt for schools that have legal cases. You know, how do you uh, how do you address the you know the dispute outside of court? But then ensuring or being careful to ensure that. Uh, The adjudication of this case outside the court does not uh, unfairly uh, leave the school with an inch of school land being lost. Um, We've also had cases where land was grabbed as a a result of the school boards of management. Uh, You know, there's a particular case in Victoria, in a Victoria primary school in, in Kisumu where where the, the former chair of of, uh, of the board of governance board of governance at the school eventually grabbed the school land, and, and there's a case in court today that uh, Shuliang is supporting and other partners. This is this these are just some of the examples of cases of schools that have lost their land as a result of the actions of people who were appointed as trustees of, of such of such school, and 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 it's quite unfortunate.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah it is. It's very disturbing that. That there's such a, that there's so much corruption. The scale is is uh, is impressive. And uh, but I understand that uh, that you're doing some work to set up a, an internet platform uh, to to track all of your work in titling land. Can you tell us a little bit more about about this work and yep. uh, how you're using open data in the fight against land corruption?
0: Yeah. Sure. Okay. Thanks. Uh, so. One of the major challenges that we faced uh, with the work on school titling is we had a president who, who issued a directive that all public schools be titled. That directive was brought to life through the gazettement of a task force that was mandated to accelerate titling, titling of schools. So, if ten schools were being titled in a year, then we, it meant that we'll be titled, we needed to t- title at least ten thousand, of twenty, you know, fifteen thousand, or whatever number of schools uh, to be titled, so that. The, 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 basically, the titling uh, is is, uh, is 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 accelerated, and, and and then and that would of course mean that uh, schools would be more safe because the document the, the documents proving the st- uh, the level of ownership would be available, and so this is this is one of the things that has been a challenge. So the challenge is that we've not had a very proper accountability system between the issuer of the directive and the offices that were mandated to do this work. So, so sometimes over the years, one of the things that we've noted, noticed is a lot of lethargy among medium and, you know, le- medium level civil servants who we've been working with. You know, it starts with a, with a lot of pomp and, and enthusiasm, and then the enthusiasm continues to wane down the line as other directives have been issued over the years, because that was not the only directive that the president issued in, 20, in 2015. There were many other directives. So as life continues, then the enthusiasm continues to wane. Uh, but then the other question, that the other thing that was a major issue for us is that there were citizens who would reach out to us and tell us would like to report uh, a school that is at risk, but the only available platforms were were the, the our, our email address or our phone number, which is toll free at toll free line, and many of them were not confident to report to the investigative agencies. Of course, the third one is uh, occasionally their citizens would call on to us and and, and ask, is our school titled? tell us is, you know, I, I come from a school X Y Z, want to know the status of titling. And so we thought to address all these issues, why don't we come up with a publicly accessible d- dashboard that provides a real-time status of school titling uh, for, for all citizens? So it provides a status of school titling uh, to the issuers or the directive, in this case it's the office of the president, who are interested in their own legacy, the legacy, the president's legacy, which is to ensure that public schools are protected, which is one of them. They also, uh, there are citizens who have been, uh, who've been supporting the, the titling of a particular school and they want to know how far those efforts have, have gone. Uh, in fact, as you're speaking, uh, so far I have just seen two missed calls of people who want to know the status of their school because we we're we are helping to support them, and and so we, we built a dashboard to to provide uh, for purposes of this of this free issue, and and one of the idea is besides providing that kind of data, it will also provide a platform uh, as we continue to develop it. To, it should provide a platform or a capability where citizens can actually report to us cases of land grabbing anonymously using that platform. So and the eventual uh, vision that we that we have for this database is that eventually we will have it migrated to one of uh, the government agency that's relevant to you know to ensure that you know issues of whistleblowing blowing protection are, are enforced because currently the country is is in the process of enacting the whistleblower protection bill so that we are able to incentivize uh, citizens and even duty bearers to provide information on issues of corruption because really land grabbing is one of the corruption instances that we that we can report in the land sector so that's that's a platform that we we've done i think the initial development was completed in in, uh, in november last year we continue to update it it's, it contains data on Almost about sixty percent of uh, public schools in the country. I mentioned we have thirty-two thousand public schools. Uh, we haven't been able to update all the hundred, uh, the forty percent of the data that we have because we're still trying to clean out that data so that eventually it goes live. And it has been live for some time, but the last two days we've brought it down to just uh, do a bit more of routine maintenance, and then, but the idea is that it should be, it should provide uh, readily acce- accessible data that can be printed by any person who accesses the, the data to be able to find out what the, what the status of school type is across the country.
1: This is really interesting. It uh, fits in perfectly with the report that was commissioned by the uh, GIZ um, that, that's entitled the, the role of open data in fighting land corruption, evidence opportunities and challenges, which is yep. about to come out. Mm-hmm. And it shows basically one of the main uh, points of this report, right, like corruption often thrives in the darkness mm-hmm. right? when you don't Indeed. actually know uh, it is much easier to grab land. Whereas <coughs> if it is publicly known yep. and in principle possible to, to have records um, that show property rights, then it, it is much uh, more mm-hmm. difficult for, for land grabbing and land corruption to occur.
0: i wonder uh,
1: yeah go go for it eric
0: yeah yeah so there's uh, there's something that you mentioned that reminded me one of one of uh, the strategies that we also hoped that the platform is going to enable us achieve is that we have parliament which is uh, one of the arms of government and so the parliamentarians or members of parliament uh, of course their work is to put the executive in check and so these members of parliament come from constituencies where schools are also being grabbed so how we incentivize them is that in the platform created what looks like a heat map so by looking at any of the counties in the country you're able to see counties that have higher cases of land grabbing than others so uh, and then this brings of course it it puts a lot of motivation or incentivizes uh, members of parliament who come from such counties with such huge issues of land grabbing it's basically just putting them to task you know the, the you know basically telling them that you have a lot of work to do and the work is already cut out for you. We can give you a database of the schools that have legal issues or schools that don't have a title because they've been grabbed of or have reported cases of encroachment. And we have status including uh, contacts of people that you can contact to take up this matter. And we've actually seen in 2019, 2018, December, we saw we had some great uh, you know, success because one of the members of parliament literally took this challenge and 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 brought together the schools in this constituency and ensured that uh, over 200 titles were issued uh, in that month alone and and this is a member of parliament and so we hope that this initiative and this challenge can be you know taken up by more members of parliament to you know to ensure that uh, they are able to speak up against the, the ills uh, related to the you know the loss of school land in 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 some of the constituencies that they are you know they elected to lead
1: you just mentioned, Eric, is very interesting the, the way you mention incentivization of sort of creating some form of public accountability, namely that if I am a politician and I see that in my uh, district, there is evidence for a lot of land grab, then you have this public shaming almost element of being like, well, you should clean up your act, right? Like wh- exactly. what's going on there? And I think that is one of the strengths of having data openly available. Now, that is sort of the positive side of it. Let me try to um, challenge uh, this approach a little bit because the report also shows that there is obviously a lot of potential in using open data, but that there is also people that are excluded from this approach, namely the people that are on the margin, women, disadvantaged groups. They often don't really have access to the data, nor do they contribute. What's your take on that? What is maybe an opportunity or a possibility to improve this that you really do engage you know all groups in the society and maybe even those that might be most vulnerable to to land
0: (coughs) yeah yeah so one of the things that of course we've been alive to that reality and one of the things that we've done to address it is segmenting the citizens so in this case so when you say we are all citizens but the spaces that we are in are different Uh, so there's a citizen who can easily access this data others can't others can barely access it Uh, So what we've done is that we've tried to always have outreach mechanisms or initiate public awareness initiatives that speak to various issues. Uh, So one of the things would be we've we've done a lot of thought leadership over the years, you know, issuing policy papers that are intended to to influence a particular decision, you know, within uh, the public service on, on protection of public schools. But one of the other things that we've done, especially in trying to build grassroots awareness and support for the work that we do is doing a lot of public sensitization initiatives which we continue to do even even with this COVID-19 of course we've we've reduced the intensity of including the numbers that we are targeting per outreach so we don't do zoom there's some of the people people that we target even with awareness initiatives that we we may not be able to have access to such platforms. So we go to the communities. What we've normally done in the last couple of years is to uh, reach out to the school heads whose contacts we all have, and we have a good relationship with them across the country. And so they help to mobilize to us the community around the school and then we come in and conduct a public, what we'd call a baraza, or you know, a public uh, forum, and you know, just build their sensitization around some of these issues. We've also come up with a handbook, book on school land protection, which um, I have a copy of in my in my house here. <laughs> but uh, so the idea is that we've we've tried to use a couple of other. Uh, strategies to try and speak to various realities on the ground, including cartoons. So there there, there are places, there are parts of this country where a report may not uh, yield much results, but but a cartoon would, uh, a participatory theater group performing as kids would would be able to, to educate the masses more than than maybe a report would or a documentary that would work in other parts of the country. So we've basically had some of these strategies that we've, we've been using, especially in counties uh, in counties that are quite uh, in the you know in the frontiers in the margins. There, there's also been a deliberate targeting of women because you know from the analysis that we've done, the gender mapping that we've done is that uh, is that women are more involved in school you know in the life of their kids who are going to school at least in this part of the country uh, as opposed to the men and and so if you want to target parents or build the sensitization then you if you are able to get hold of the mother or you know the ladies, you know, uh, or just the, the women around the community, then there would be a bit a bit more of progress or value in there because uh, you know what research has proven in this part of of our, of our world is that is that women are more involved in, in in the education issues of their of their kids. So if a school is being grabbed, you most probably will find women in such in, in such forums. Uh, so the, in fact, one of the challenges has been been able to target. Men to be able to rise up to, to some of these issues, including the leadership that we've continued to see in such spaces. So, so I'd say that there's been a number of products, uh, you know, uh, products that we've released over the couple of years, the last couple of years that speak to various realities on the ground. We have products, uh, you know, products that that speak to people who have access to the social media. Uh, we also have lines, for example. We hope that in future we can link the open data platform to uh, our USSD platform. Where we can send out uh, messaging to, you know, to our community members that we've targeted and, and, and agreed to send them out communication so that if a member, if, if someone is not able to access a platform and, and report any case of, of school land grabbing or encroachment, they're able to call a toll free number, which has been there for a couple of years now, or they can, they can report through the USSD mechanism, which we haven't, we haven't yet worked on, but uh, it's something that is in the works, uh, you know that as you continue to implement
1: this work it's very interesting because uh we are in our academic work often um differentiating between transparency on paper and transparency in action and i think all of the mention all of the the efforts that you mentioned are trying to turn transparency on paper into transparency in action right in that action. you do something with the data because we know from research that just providing the data is often not enough. You need some form of engagement, um, exactly. like you say, building the bridge yeah. to the civil society, creating somewhat of a critical public that engages with the data in order to draw conclusions and then to to push for reforms, etc. I think that's it's very inspiring to hear your work, Eric. I think maybe yeah. um, to flip the script a little bit, we have a lot of young researchers in our audience. Do you have? questions, research questions, open knowledge gaps where you feel like here we really need some more research. We really need a young, motivated, uh, uh, policy-oriented researchers that can help us to tackle the following open gaps.
0: Yep, Uh, so I think uh, some, some of the areas that I've seen, especially at least in our context, is there's been a lot of controversy around sponsored schools. We have schools that are Public, uh, the public schools but the sponsorship is, is, is by, the, by by religious institutions and, and one of the controversies has been uh, if you issue that school with the title deed what will the name read? Will it read will it be registered uh, in the name of the religious organization in trust of the school or the name of the religious institution which is a sponsor in this case or will it read as any other public school that is not sponsored by the religious institution but is public uh, a public school, and that is in the name of the CS Treasury in Trust of a, of, 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 a, of a particular school. So there's been, a I think there's there's need for a bit more of, of, of data around this. Uh, I think there are a bit that, that continues to be uh, a, a challenge that I would see or, or an opportunity for further in research is, is around the issue of, of movement building. It's continued to be a challenge that's alive over the years, how we organize and even the best case studies across the world, how do we domesticate those two communities whose realities are very different from one place to the other. Uh, As we've continued to do this campaign, we've realized that there there are strategies that we can use in certain parts of this country that we can't use in other parts of this country. And how do civil society actors uh, remain alive to such realities and and what strategies can they use to ensure that um, they are able to uh, to tweak whatever whatever needs to be done uh, to achieve the maximum uh, value from the interventions that they seek to, you know, uh, to undertake. Another bit of research is, especially around media, the, the role of media, uh, just trying to mobilise media around this data revolution, uh, you know, scope. Because one of the main targets for, uh, one of the other main target groups for the open data platform was actually the media stakeholders. Because if a media house picks up an issue like, you know, a, a, an issue that comes out of that platform, if a media house picks up that issue, it's, it's going to move at a faster rate than it would if it was picked by ordinary citizens. Uh, and so how do we incentivize media houses to, to have the skills uh, on, on how to pick out these issues? And, and how to communicate issues around land issues, and 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 you know, I would imagine that the case is uh, is the same across uh, the world, that land is is a deeply technical issue. Land issues are quite technical. So, how do you build the knowledge and change the perception of 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 most citizens who think that? They don't have a role to play in in as far as land protection goes, because they feel that it's too technical an area for them uh, to interact and, and and perhaps leave that to the lawyers and leave that to the surveyors in our midst, or you know uh, other segments of the, of the populace. What is the incentive that we give to the average to the average citizen towards uh, participating in this? how do we speak to their emotions and, and make them want to see this as an important issue, even if they don't have a school going kid in a particular school that is being grabbed, you know, how do we relate the need for us to, to come in and, and the passion that is in them to do, to do good to, towards, um, towards protecting public spaces.
2: Well, that's interesting. I, uh, your perspective on, on trying to capture media interest in this initiative and, uh, Using the data platform as a hook for for media, what do you anticipate will be the impact? What kind of relationship do you have with media, and uh, do you have any initial feedback that suggests that uh, that they'll be taking this on in a larger scale and uh, promoting it?
0: Right. Yeah. So my my interest in 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 working closely or incentivizing the media is informed by a previous project that we've done with the media uh, and this this is this is around public audit reporting so what you did is we realized that no one reads the auditor general report including people who should be reading them uh, i don't know about your countries but but in this country even the people who should be reading and analyzing the reports from the auditor general don't and so what we did is that we we compiled reports from for a period of 10 years And what you're trying to do is you're trying to see what has been the auditor saying, what has the auditor been saying about certain ministry over the years, what have been the audit queries over the years, and they have been recurring. Because if an issue is recurring, then it means that uh, the recommendations are not being affected. So how do we incentivize people to actually listen and take a step around this? And so we built a platform that we call the Public Audit Dashboard, and the main targets for this dashboard were the media stakeholders. So what we did is that we mapped... Across the entire country, we mapped uh, journalists who, journalists, mainstream journalists and citizen journalists who were speaking around the issues of public audit or issues of governance. And, and so we knew that this would interest them. So we took them out to retreats, uh, workshops across the country. We trained them. We developed a media, ha- a media training handbook on audit reporting. You know, when you, when you hear an, an audit opinion, what does that mean? Uh, to, as a, as a, is, is, does it mean that money is actually lost? But it means, or could it mean that uh, there, there is a need to investigate further as a result of what the initial findings of an audit report are? And immediately we did that platform and did the sensitization and engagement with the media stakeholders. We saw a lot of uh, agency and, um, and and interest in the platform. We continue to see that. And in fact, we are in the process of uh, we're in the process of establishing an award scheme for journalists in the country in collaboration with the Office of the Auditor General to journalists who report around audit the audit issues over the years. And and we've continued to see a lot of um, interest, and even a lot of civil society organisations are now picking up. You know, the aspect of analysis of audit reports and, you know, successes in some of these platforms and other platforms that we may not have directly been part of or been part of development, but have seen the resultant effects of what they, they can do in the efforts of of making information more accessible. I think is what has informed us, uh, in, informed the, our enthusiasm to try and, to try and bring this data, make this data out. So we hope that some, as we, as we go forward, uh, some of, some of the, the steps we will be taking is to, of course, map uh, journalists within the land sector, you know, journalists who report around land issues uh, and land corruption issues. And, and of course, bring them to a place, a common place where we can, we can train them what the um, issues are. You know what what to look out very what, what, what do various things mean when you see a heat map of a school that has cases uh, more cases in court as what does this mean and how do you how do you go back to looking at this issue so I would say that, that that has been the incentive behind wanting to wanting to reach out to media stakeholders as a result of the previous relations that we've had um, in the past
1: well Eric uh, thanks so much this this has been really interesting I, I know you've been very generous with your time so I have two more questions Quick questions for you. Uh, One I really wanted to ask you because it's, I think, very informative to hear about your work in Kenya. Just always a question when it comes to anti-corruption is like, how does it translate into other contexts, right? So what would you say to people battling with land corruption in other countries are the top, let's say, three to five priorities they should pay attention to? What would you say is like that, you know, like sort of the, the hit list of things they should definitely take care of or pay attention to
0: Uh, so for people battling uh, land corruption i think of course one of the places to begin is is just trying to look at the communities and one of the lessons that we've learned over the years is that one of the most sustainable way of of fighting land related corruption is uh, building building the base so basically equipping ordinary citizens to be able to take Action and mobilize themselves and 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 have a very organic uh, mechanism of defending public school spaces. I can't I, I can actually tell you that as a result of some of the work that we've done in part of the in some part of these countries, in some in some part of this country, uh, today we receive reports of what uh, citizens are doing in those spaces. We, which we haven't had any relationship with, but because we trained uh, public land defenders in those communities, and they and those are public defenders who, who continue to live in those communities, amongst them, and whenever they need, whenever they need any information, cascaded to other members of the community. We always come in and build that support. Uh, so I would say equipping citizens with the knowledge and the skills. Uh, on how to do this is has been, I think, has been one of the best, one of the most efficient ways of ensuring that we sustain the work that we do. I think the other bit is uh, that it, it's also important to, because I think in trying to address issues of land corruption, one of the questions that cannot be uh, averted or ignored is court cases. You know, there, there are land cases, there are land issues or land-related corruption that will end up in our courts. Uh, and sometimes there are people who shy away because, uh, when you get into the court system, then you know it's a whole different ball game, and, and many citizens or many people would not want to get into that murky waters. But one of the other lessons that we've learned over the years is that we have advocates and lawyers in this country who are looking for such briefs. They're looking for people who are doing such work and would want to plug in. So are we able to map these men and women in our midst to? Would, would be honoured to be part of this work as, as a pro bono, you know, as part of the public interest uh, litigation. We've seen that uh, most of the most of the lawyers that we've worked with over the years have actually not charged us because uh, for them, this, this for them is a passion. It, it's for them reclaiming a public land space and is the opportunity for them to give back to society. Uh, and so if, if we do not know who these people are in our communities, then we do not know who can... Be an enabler in in in, the, in our efforts to to reclaim public spaces. Uh, we've also seen media houses, uh, journalists, and, and and I think one of one of the things that uh, people are not able to quite appreciate uh, is that sometimes our media houses actually don't have stories to tell, and and they're looking for these stories in our media stories of courage, uh, stories of people who are doing some amazing work in these communities. So how are we able to map who these people are and and, and be able to tell these stories and and be able to mobilise? Because really, that is what builds the confidence across the country and then across the various communities that we are part of to to ensure that that people can, can be able to learn on, on what another corner of the country is doing and be able to uh, domesticate such lessons for their own benefit.
1: It's sort of in line with this paper that has the, the nice title, um, Free Press is Bad News for Corruption. right? Like yeah, exactly. you, you need to have the, the press to have this watchdog role and be uh, oftentimes, I guess, interested in the stories because they, they do reflect The realities of people oftentimes and therefore yeah it can it can take a very important role in anti-corruption as a final question we always ask in our podcast uh, for a pick of the podcast this can be a book a movie another podcast uh, a paper anything that you find inspiring and would like to share with our audience what do you have in mind eric
0: all right thanks um so i think a pick i'd share with the audience is a book by duncan green He's done a couple of books, but one of my most favorite is How Change Happens. And 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 why I love this book is is, is because what he's done is that he's mapped uh, various movements of uh, what citizens have done across the country in various different spaces and, and, and try to tell stories of what ordinary citizens have done, uh, you know, in their efforts to try and reclaim lost rights or stolen rights or spaces that have been grabbed uh, or trying to push uh, public uh, public servants to take certain direction uh, which had not been the case previously. And, and I love it because it's basically speaks to various contexts uh, from I think speaks stories from uh, I think all six continents just trying to tell stories of of activism and how active citizens and act, how active citizens citizenship can can be a true uh, enabler of of, of um, the change that we want in our societies. So it's a book I'd recommend to your followers and your listeners.
1: Well, Eric, asanta sana kwa mahujiano. This was really, really great. <laughs> I really enjoyed the interview. Thanks a lot for your time, and uh, thank you also, Neil, for for joining and well making the connection and making all of this happen. Thank you, thank you both very much.
0: As you can see, it's getting dark on our end, but I'm glad to I'm glad to have participated, and I hope to have many more opportunities to engage on these and many other conversations. Thank you and God bless. I
2: sure do. Thanks so much.
1: That was another episode of Kickback. Thanks for tuning in.
0: If you want to learn more
1: about Eric's work, please check out the show notes of this episode. A big thanks goes out to the people of The Land Portal who made this episode possible especially Neil Sorensen, whose voice you heard in the podcast interview, and Stacey Samet.
0: If you want to learn more about their work, check out their website. If you like what we do, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP.
1: We also appreciate if you use your social media channels to post about the podcast. Kickback is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis. Jonathan Kleimpers, Matthew Stevenson and me, Christopher Starke. See you next time.